0: That is a Meekum car auction. They're on TV a lot on Saturdays. Um, If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to be going through, uh, continuing our sermon series, going through the book of Genesis. and We're going to be calling this part of the sermon series, we're going to be calling it Rescued. Uh, One of the things that uh, has been so much fun for me as I've been studying Genesis, preparing to preach it, is just how God plans to rescue us from the moment that our cell phone goes off in church and we don't silence it. Uh, God plans to rescue us. From the moment we sin, he starts pointing us to Jesus Christ. And uh, that's just so cool how God does that. He's our rescuer. That's God's heart. And uh, I love my life. I love my family. I love my job. I love my church. I love you guys. But the more I live life, the more I want to be rescued. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and deliver us and save us. The sooner he comes, the better it is. And God's got a plan to send his son. He's got a plan to be our rescuer. And so we're going to be reading in Genesis chapter 18, talking about how God rescues us. And that was a car auction. I've been really enjoying uh, these car auctions that I've been watching. They just roll car after car across this red carpet. And the auctioneer stands up front and he does his little thing. Ah, oh, gotta go to get a 40, gotta get a 45, gotta get gotta go. Reserve is off. That's my favorite part. That means the car is gonna be sold. That means they've been high enough that the guy is going to let the car be sold. And I've been watching these, and the auctioneer, he's got one job, actually, is to try to keep people excited. And keep people engaged because they found that if somebody stands up and talks like that, like that's why they talk like that. You know, there's not some certain dialect in the United States where everybody just goes around saying those things. You know, go to go go to the grocery store and like, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing today? Are you doing all right today? Are you doing good? Are you doing like that? That's actually a thing that only auctioneers do, and it's because it keeps people engaged and excited. And they found that people pay more and spend more if that auctioneer speaks that way. They're out there to get every little bit that they can. And draw every little bit that they can pull from the people. And when I pray to God, I find myself sometimes feeling like I'm doing the same thing. Trying to pull things from God. And it's interesting. God can give me all these blessings, but it just never fails. My attention turns to whatever is wrong in my life, and I focus on it. And I beg God for it. And I start feeling like that auctioneer. God, can I get a healing? Can I get a healing? Can I get a deliverance? Can I can't get a deliverance. And maybe just a little strength. a little, a little strength? A little piece. God, can I get just a little piece over here? <laughs> and I, I think that shapes our perception of God. I turn my perception from all these blessings to this little thing. And then I feel like God either doesn't see me or doesn't care or is distant because I've got this one thing in my life. For many of us, it's bigger. It's a real deal. You know, our suffering is real. But still, I think we start to feel like our God, like we're auctioneers trying to pull something from a God who isn't generous, from a God who isn't merciful. And so when we're going to be reading about what kind of God we have. Is he, is he distant? Is he uncaring? Or does God know us, know everything about us? So we're going to be reading in Genesis chapter 18, we're going to be reading one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. It is a story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to begin reading in chapter 18, verse 17. I've, I've already misplaced my, my clicker. Um, Josh, if you could just have a uh, click. Actually, we're going we're to go forward and we're going to talk about what we've been doing in Genesis uh, so far. Let me see if I can find it down. I do not know what I did with that. All right, so Josh, if I could just have you go through. So this is where we've been in Genesis. This is where we're at. Uh, we started reading in Genesis in chapter one, right at the beginning, and God creates everything, and he creates everything good. That's the kind of God we have, and we're going to be talking more about that in a moment. I can't wait to talk more about that in a moment, but God creates everything. He creates the good, and Josh, can I have to go to the next one? From now on, I'll just go like this, and you can turn this. slide. So uh, human beings, we rebel and sin, and this is where all evil enters into God's good creation. God creates everything good. Human beings reject God. As we reject God, we become ungodly. That makes a lot of sense. And it's not long before we are thoroughly ungodly. We have rejected God fully, and people no longer know God. We no longer know this good God who has created us. And so God's got a plan to rescue us and to fix this situation. God always knew that this would happen. He'd always know that he'd come in the flesh. And so what God does to start this process of salvation and rescue is that God picks a man named Abraham who he's going to teach about himself. And so we've talked about that. And then uh, God begins teaching these people who no longer know him about himself. And now now we've sort of gone beyond Genesis here, and we'll go through the rest of the Old Testament so we can see how it fits in. That's Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. People who no longer know God, what he wants, what he's like, God begins giving them his teaching. We sort of think we have in this today and age, I don't know why, but we have this perception like the world's going down. And um, it probably is in a lot of ways for sure. Uh, But the world back in uh, Genesis chapter 6 is far worse than it is today. Our world has had thousands of years of God's teaching uh, to bring us back to him. And so I'm sure the world has, you know, lots of evil, it could be on a downward trajectory. But when we look back and at the passage today in Sodom and Gomorrah, we need to remember like this is not a suburban Blaine. Right, these are people who have thoroughly rejected God, who no longer know the Lord, and God is bringing his word to them. They're hearing it for the first time. We've had thousands of years of Christian teaching to influence us and our society. And so he begins teaching them who he is and what he's like, preparing us for his coming, and uh, the prophets especially do that. And then God comes and saves in the flesh. That's Jesus in the Gospels. All right, so begin reading in chapter 18. And so now we've been reading through where we stopped before um, we went into our Nehemiah series where we stopped in Genesis right around Christmas. Uh, We stopped at the birth of Isaac. God has been promising Abraham all these children as numerous as the stars, as we saw in that picture, on that timeline. And Abraham was waiting and waiting for a child. And God uh, finally delivers on that promise. Abraham had to wait and wait, but Abraham gets the promised child that God promised because God always comes through on his promises. And in, uh, on Christmas, we talked about how God promised Jesus, and we paralleled that and how Jesus was the promised child who came, how God always keeps his promises. And so here we're going to actually take a step back in between Abraham waiting for that promise and God delivering that promise in chapter 19, uh, chapter 21. There's a story that takes place from chapter 18 through 19 that we're going to go back and we're going to read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we will going to go back just a little bit from where we were at Christmas. And so starting in verse 17 God already knows what he's going to do. He says, should I hide it from Abraham, what I'm about to do? God knows what he's going to do. God knows what he's already going to do. Now, spoiler alert, uh, what he's going to do is he's going to completely destroy the city. He is going to judge them, find them thoroughly worthy of death. And that's what God plans on doing to Sodom and Gomorrah. And why does God know what he's about to do? Is it because it doesn't matter anymore? They can't choose anything else? If they turned and repented in the next few days, God's already made up his mind. He knows what he's about to do, and it doesn't matter, and it's over for them. Is that what it means when God says, I know what I shall do? Is he sort of made up his mind? Actually, that's not not the case. What it means is that God knows the future. God knows what the people of Sodom and Gomorrah have chosen, are choosing, and will choose. And so God hasn't sort of like made up his mind, and it doesn't really matter what the people do from here on out. What has actually happened is God knows what those people will do with their choice. God knows their destiny. Because God is all-knowing. He knows the future. He knows every single thing. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah are predestined to destruction and God's judgment. And when the Bible speaks of that, do we have a choice? A lot of Christians, they spend tons of time arguing back and forth. Are we predestined? Do we have a choice? Do we have free will? They, they go back and forth. Books have been written on it. Denominations have split over it. And the way the Bible presents it, the answer is absolutely both. We are predestined. And we have a choice. And here's how that works. Before God ever created the world, right? Got to go back to before God created the world, before we started reading in Genesis chapter 1, God thought about creating, right? And God, he only does the best. He does no A-minus jobs. God's not someone who cuts corners, who leaves things unfinished. Well, it could have been improved a little bit, but I'm just going to stop now. Like, God isn't that way. He's an A-plus God, so God only does the best things. And so when God sets out to think about creating this world, he's only going to do the best thing. He's going to create the best world possible. That's the kind of God he is. And so God creates the best world possible, and as he's thinking about creating this best world, God, being all-knowing, knows that the best thing that could be included in this best world is love. God wants people who love him. And God loves the people he creates. The best thing in the best world is love. And God knows that for love to happen, there has to be a choice. And so God, before he creates the world, he knows he's got to give these people, he creates a choice to choose him, reject him in order to love him. And so God looks down at this world he's going to create, he hasn't even created, he looks down and he says, I need to give all of these people choices. And God knows from the moment he creates that world, all throughout time and history, that all these people will be choosing. And God, being all-knowing, before he ever creates the world, knows what every single person is going to do with that choice. He knows what your grandma would do with that choice. He knows what you'll do with that choice. He knows what your children will do with that choice. Your your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. God knows what every person will do. And then, knowing whether they'll choose or reject him, whether they'll choose to love him or choose to hate him and turn from him, God knows that this is the best world possible. He knows what everyone will do. He knows whether each person will choose him and go to heaven or reject him and be condemned and judged and go to hell. And God says, this is the best world possible, and he creates it. And from that moment, we are predestined. We're predestined by our choice. And we're predestined by God's knowledge of that choice. Now, God hasn't chosen for us. What he has done is chosen to create. And in doing so, By choosing to create and choosing to give us that choice, and knowing that, we are predestined. So when the Bible says that before the world began, God looked and chose you. He chose you as one of his children, who would choose Jesus Christ and put their faith in him. That is 100% true. Before the world began, God chose you, because he saw that you would choose him, and he chose to create. And from that moment, you're destined, by your choice. And so here the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not that they're predestined to go on sinning at any moment. I shouldn't say that. It's not that they must go on sinning. At any point, they could choose and turn and choose God. Their decision hasn't been made for them. God has given them a real decision. But God knows what they will choose. God knows what they will do with that choice. And he knows that they're fully worthy of his judgment and worthy of death. And God says, "Should I hide this from Abraham? Should I hide it from him? Because God knows that the, what's coming to that people, in that city, is it should I uh, back up or move forward?" or We're good. What's that? We're good. Um, God knows what's coming to that city is going to be violent. It's going to be destructive. It's going to be frightening. It's going to be shocking. Now, Abraham is someone who's getting to know God. He's someone who, just like in Genesis chapter 6, the world had lost its knowledge of God through rejection of him. So Abraham's getting to know God, and God's looking down. He's saying, what will Abraham think if I do this, right? What will Abraham look at that? Should I hide it from him? And the answer, of course, is no. The answer is no, because God is good in all that he does. And nothing that he does needs to be hidden. God asks, should I hide it from him? My question to you is, should I hide this from you? Should I hide this passage from you? Because very few churches will talk about this in in their services. And I know that we do. We read through the Bible and we read through these passages and we don't avoid them. I'm telling you, I wish there were fewer of them. When I pick a passage like Genesis, when I go through the book of Genesis and I'm excited to preach Genesis, it's for all these reasons of like how God masterfully reveals his plan of salvation to us in Jesus Christ. And as I go through, I'm really excited to preach those. And as I go through, whether it's a book like Genesis or a book in the New Testament, I'm always surprised at how many passages there are on God's judgment. When I'm looking to preach a a book like this, I never sit down, and I never sit and count the passages of God's judgment. I'm always doing it because of some other thing. But then if I'm going to be honest, and I look at God's word, and I learn from God's word, right? I don't bring God's, my idea of God to his word, but I get my idea about God from his word. I just got to be honest, my, my understanding of God has changed since I've become a pastor and have, been, and have committed to going through books and books of the Bible to hear what God is saying to us and bring that message to you. And the message that God wants us to hear over and over again is repent of your sin. It's repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in him because judgment is coming. Heaven and hell await for each one of us. And God does not want us to lose that focus. He wants us to go through every day with that focus. What am I choosing today? Am I choosing to follow the Lord or am I rejecting him? Am I going away from him or closer to him? God wants to save us. Now every opportunity, every area of your life is most certainly important to God. And there are, every area of life is covered at some point in this Bible. But the main message that God wants to bring is repent. And believe in Jesus Christ. He's come to save us. God doesn't want us to lose sight of that. And so here we have another passage of God's judgment. We, we talked a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 6 about the flood. We saw another passage of God's judgment. And this sermon is going to be very similar from that one. Another passage about God's judgment, which is to teach us ultimately about his salvation. And God says, should I hide this from Abraham? No. And should the church hide it from you? No. I want you to read the Bible. This is God's word to you. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, if you're going to follow God, you should know who he is. And I don't want to be the type of pastor that only focuses on some things and gives you an incomplete view of God. I don't want you to be people who go home and only read certain passages and have an incomplete view of God. I want you to know how good God is. I want you to know how much he loves you. I want you to know what awaits people who reject him. I want you to know what awaits people who choose him. And so should we hide these passages like, no, we need to talk about him, because they're good. They're really good. I right, can go to there we go. Oh, can we go back to Marty? Um, So this is Marty Sampson. I gave an example a few weeks ago when we talked about the flood. I'm going to talk about him again today. Uh, Maybe some of you weren't here for that, or maybe uh, some of you have forgotten. Um, But this is Marty Sampson. Now, if we don't talk about things like this, uh, people leave the church. Because they read the Bible at some point, and they realize that they have a God of judgment. And they can't handle, they can't serve that God. This is Marty Sampson. He's a worship leader. He's a worship leader of the largest church in the world in Australia. He has sung more songs about Jesus, praising Jesus for his salvation than just about anybody. He's written more songs praising Jesus for his salvation than just about anybody. He's led more people in worship of Jesus for their salvation than just about anybody. And recently, Marty left the faith and said, I'm no longer going to be a Christian because the church has hidden things from me. They've hidden things. They didn't give me the right. He read the Bible for the first time. I have no idea how you get to be the worship leader in the largest church in the world without reading your Bible. But Marty made it. And one day he read the Bible and he looked down and he said, I can't believe in a God of judgment. And he left the faith. And here's why Marty left. And I just want to say people will leave the church because we don't talk about this. They'll leave the church because we talk about it. People will leave the church for all sorts of reasons when they learn about who God is. And ultimately, the reason why we come to the Lord is his Holy Spirit. And is God's Holy Spirit calling you. What will you do with your choice? Are you someone who's willing to learn and follow God? For who he is, that is the question that each one of us need to make. We can't blame it on anything else. The church didn't do this for me. The church didn't do that for me. They didn't talk enough about this. They didn't talk enough about that. The question is, what are we doing with God's Spirit? Now, I've been to a lot of different churches. I've never been to a bad church. I've been to churches that I disagree with on some of their finer points theologically. But I've never been to a church that did not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question is not so much about, oh, my church didn't do it. It's what are we doing with this Holy Spirit? Here's Marty's own words about why he left the church. They were hiding things from him, he said. He said, how many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send 4 billion people to a place all cuz they don't believe? No one talks about it. And Marty, I'm just telling you like this is why I exist as a pastor. Right? Cuz this is why I, ex- I want to bring God's word to people cuz all of these things are addressed. They're all addressed in God's word. And I love bringing God's word to people to answer some of these questions that are floating around out there. God doesn't send 4 billion people to a place all cuz they don't believe? That's not what God does. God gives people a choice. Do you want me or not? And then God loves us enough to honor that choice. If you don't love me, if you don't want me, then you don't have to have me. And God and all those who choose him will go to heaven and he will send all those away. Now, the Bible presents hell as a place where it's under active punishment from God. It also says hell is a place where God is just not. God's presence is not there. Now, I know God in the Bible actively punishes those who don't choose him, but he doesn't actually even have to. I don't think he'd even have to, because people apart from God would create hell by themselves. God is just honoring their choice. God isn't vindictive. He doesn't stand up there and send four billion people just because they made made the wrong choice. No. God sends four billion people to hell because they don't want him. And he takes all of those who want him to heaven. Anybody who wants him. Marty, if you want him, he'll take you to heaven. That is the promise. Jesus is a savior. Marty sung more songs about Jesus' salvation than anybody. What did he think Jesus was saving him from? It's hell. All of us are worthy of hell apart from Jesus Christ. That is the message. All of us will die, will be put in the ground, and we'll meet our maker. And we'll stand to pay for our sins before God, apart from Jesus. And Jesus saves us from that. Jesus is our savior. He doesn't save us from just small things, first world problems, right? Like, the internet is so slow here. Oh, my life is so hard. My plane got delayed for 40 minutes. Forget that. In between there and now, I experienced the modern miracle of, of human flight. Right? Like, what do you think he's saving us from? Minor frustrations? Oh, I'm so glad that I'll go to heaven and be saved from the minor frustrations of my life. Jesus is our Savior, and we can't be like this. We can't, Christians, we can't be like this anymore. We've got to find out what we believe. We've got to know what we believe. We can't just trust other people to read the Bible and tell us. We've got to get into it for ourselves. We can't be, have a faith that never graduates from the preschool area. There's adults walking around who have a, a greater under, as equal of an understanding of God and His judgment. Adults who have a, the same understanding as some of the kids in that preschool area. The world is needing Jesus Christ and he has called us to go out and tell the world about him and his love and his salvation and that means we got to know it. we got to know what we're doing here. we got to know what's in God's word. We can't be like Marty. And Satan wants us to not talk about sin. This is God's word. This is God's word. This is what God wants to bring to us today. And Satan wants us to not read it. Satan wants us to not talk about sin. The reason why is Satan wants us to choose it. He wants us to choose it. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from each other. And Satan wants us to keep it and hide it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to, don't tell me I should repent of it. I want it. I want it. Satan wants us to keep choosing it. Here's what happens if we keep choosing our sin and we don't repent. We stop following the Lord. And at many points, we stop believing in him completely. Because what happens is as we don't talk about our sin, as we don't call it out, as we don't repent about it, as we don't talk about God's judgment on it, we keep choosing it and choosing it and choosing it, and we don't repent, and we love it more and more. We just love it more and more. And Jesus, here's the deal. If Jesus is first in your life, you're going to experience the joy of and the love that comes with being a Christian, the inspiration, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, all of those things that we want, if Jesus is first, if he's second, if he's third, if he's fourth, suddenly it's not fun anymore. It's just a, it's just a brutal slog. We come to church because we know we should, but God's really keeping us from what we want. We know we should read our Bible because we should, but he, what he, he's really keeping us from what we want us to sleep in. We don't love coming to church. We don't love the Lord when he's second, third, or fourth, but we're falling him out of obligation, just getting madder and madder at him because he's keeping us from the first few things on our list. And that's what Satan wants. He wants those sins to climb higher on our list so that eventually we choose Satan and reject God and Jesus. And the more we talk about our sin and the more we talk about God's judgment on our sin, the less good it looks. The more we draw it out into the light, the more we let everybody look at it. The more God we understand, God sees it. The more we understand the repercussions of it. The more we understand how bad it is. That God is going to destroy it in a fiery hell. The more we talk about that, the less we want it. Somebody said, "I don't, I don't want this anymore." This feels really good right now, but all of a sudden we start looking at the bigger picture, and you're like, "No, I don't want it anymore." I repent of that sin. And I choose to follow Jesus Christ. Because this is hell. I want to get away from that. Suddenly that sin looks a little more disgusting when you realize the hellfire and brimstone that awaits. And suddenly you want to repent a little bit more. And I talk about this kind of stuff up here. I want you to love the Lord. That's what I want. I want you to love the Lord so much that you choose to repent of that sin and follow Jesus. What I want in my life is I want Jesus to be first. My heart is an idol factory. Jesus is always slipping down my list. I'm always having to repent and seek God's spirit to put him back first. So I can experience that joy. When we talk about God's judgment, I want you to grow in your love for the Lord. So that you make that choice for Jesus Christ. That you're one of those people. That was God gives you that choice. That you choose him. I want you to hate your sin. And I want you to turn from Satan and reject him. And I want you to believe and love in your Savior, Jesus Christ. So today we're going to read about God's judgment. We're not going to hide it. We're also not going to stop, talk, stop there talking about it. We're going to talk about the bigger picture. About how every single person who chooses God. That's what this story is about. We're disturbed by the destruction of the judgment. Because that's what we're afraid of. And we know that at at some level, deep down, we know that this is really, this is really what I deserve for my sin. And so we're so disturbed at the destruction of the judgment. But there's a story about God's rescue and his salvation. About how anybody who chooses to follow him, who chooses to turn and believe in him, will be saved. We're afraid of his judgment, so we think it's a story about his judgment. It's actually a story about his mercy and his salvation. God says, Should I hide it for him? Of course not, for I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. God knows everything, he doesn't make any mistakes. He makes sure that he's right in all that he does. And so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And that is our fear. See, we think we're more merciful than God. We read a story about his judgment, and we say, Did he really need to do that? Next week, we're going to talk about Aaron Rodgers. And I know there's some Packers fans here today. Uh, Aaron Rodgers just rejected the faith, or actually hasn't explained Why? And so next week, I'm really excited to do that. We're going to read Genesis 18 and 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah in context of Aaron Rodgers and his statements. And uh, we're going to talk about that. But Aaron Rodgers, again, people like Aaron Rodgers, his statement is, I can't believe in a God of judgment. God's not loving. What kind of loving God would send people to a fiery hell? I'll tell you what kind of God would do that. What kind of loving God would do that? A loving God who says, no more. No more. No more evil. No more people who are committed to evil. No more suffering for my children. That's enough. Every good parent will do that and have a point where they'll do that. They'll step in. No more. My people will not suffer evil anymore. That's love. And that's a God of love. His judgment is out of love for us. Now it's hard to talk and think about. But it is true that some people are so committed to evil that it is better if God steps in and gives them their choice and removes them from the presence of the earth and from our presence as well. Some of these people criticize the Bible as they read Sodom and Gomorrah. They feel like it's a neighborhood in our city. Like, you at Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, you just went down to the park with your kid in the stroller. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Are you coming to the barbecue next week, the Sodom and Gomorrah barbecue? Are you going to go? That's not it. We're going to read about how terrible this city is. How thoroughly wicked they are. I don't see too many people saying that the America wasn't merciful as we went out and tried to remove the Nazi presence from the world. And this is what God does in his judgment. And Abraham feels this way. Wait, God. I have a hard time trusting you in this. Are you really going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham thinks that somehow... Because he doesn't know God. He's learning about God. He's worried. God, would you do this? Why would he think that a good God would do that? It's because he doesn't know him. He needs to get to know him. And we need to get to know him. You might feel like God is holding out on you. You might feel like God is causing bad things in your life. And you need to get to know the Lord. You might be blaming God in your life for a bunch of stuff that God isn't responsible for and actually stands with you. Against those things. And plans to deliver you. And plans to save you. But because of your lack of knowledge of God. You're blaming him. Abraham needs, needs to get to know God. We need to get to know God. It's so natural for me to blame God. When something goes wrong. God why are you doing this? It's my reaction inside. It comes from a, a heart separated from God by sin. If I knew God. If he stood with me face to face, I wouldn't have any of those doubts about his goodness. I wouldn't be blaming him for any of the things that are wrong in my life. Instead, I'd be praising him for his goodness and his promise to be with me and fix those things. Abraham needs to get to know God some more. And so do we. verse 24, Abraham says, "'Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing.'" To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham's kind of trying to remind God, hey, hey, you wouldn't do this, right? You need to be just, the God of all justice. He wouldn't do that. So for 50 people, will you spare the city? And God is not being reminded by Abraham about how good or how just he is or should be. But God is engaging in this conversation because he's teaching Abraham about him. This is the kind of God I am. So they go through this long back and forth. Or Abraham thinks he's talking God down. He thinks he's talking God more and more to mercy. But really what God is doing is just revealing more and more of how he's merciful to Abraham. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I, who am but dust and ashes... Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose there are 40 found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the, not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now so here, Abraham struggling to trust God in his judgment that God will be good, that God will make sure that everything is going to be right. Abraham struggling with that, and so he goes through this process, and God reminds Abraham that he's good and is of of his goodness. And we have this strange conversation where Abraham, like a reverse auctioneer, tries to get all that he can from God. He thinks God is holding out, that God is incompetent, that God, I'm not sure if I can trust you. And so he's getting all that he can out of God. God, if there's 50 righteous people, I got 50 righteous people in the city. If there's 50 righteous people, we destroy the city for 50. You gotta get 50. Got a 50. We got a 50 over here. How about 45, Lord? If 45 minutes, can we get 40? 30, 30, 20. Reserve is off. Going once, twice, sold for 10 people. Sold for 10 people. Abraham's only stops at 10. He thinks he's more merciful than God. He stopped at 10. Nine people were good enough for Abraham to be destroyed. Nine righteous people. The same God who is going to destroy the city. He's the same God who leaves the 99 to find the one. God is more merciful than we could imagine. There it is. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is, not the will of God, my Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. And that is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I was going to read next week, God sends people into that city to find every righteous person. Now, it's not 10, he's going to destroy it, but he's going to make sure that not one person who loves him is lost, that not one person who's using their choice that God has given them to find the Lord, to seek him, not one person who wants God will be lost. This is not two different gods. It's one God acting out of love. God makes sure that every person, that every lost lamb is found. God loses none of the people who come to him. John chapter 6 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. When God created that world, everybody who chose was wanting God, everybody who was going to use their choice to want God, all those people given to Jesus, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God is good. Jesus is God. Jesus is good. If we want God, if we want good, we will choose Jesus. If we don't, we will reject him. Those are one and the same choice. A rejection of Jesus and a rejection of good, a rejection of God. It's all one and the same. Everyone who chooses God will be raised up on the last day. God will leave nobody behind. And if we're worried about God's judgment as we go through the Bible, we need to know that God makes no mistakes. God will not leave behind one person who wants him. And finally, as we go through this world, no matter how evil the world gets, we need to know God never forgets us. We're looking at this world, and it is, it seems to be in a crazy direction locally, nationally. We go to school, where people are rejecting the way God made us. And you can't call boys, boys, or girls, girls anymore. We go to work, and we have to watch training videos that clearly teach us that Christians should be quiet. And not speak up. You just came from a neighborhood where not a single car moved from its driveway but yours to come to church. And we go through this world and it's not an easy experience being people who love the Lord. God feels far from us in a situation like this. I'm sure lot and his daughters, the people who were saved from Sodom and Gomorrah before he judged it. I'm sure they felt the same way. God can feel far. You know we read that verse, verse in In Matthew about how God knows the hairs on our head. And we think he must have a great telescope. He must have a great telescope to be able to see how many hairs I have in my head from way out there. Because he's nowhere near me. But God never forgets us. He's never not with us. (laughs) Even when God feels far. He is so close to those who love him. Today we moved a song before the sermon to a song after the sermon, because good preaching should be should elicit a response of worship. As we read God's word, and we read about how much He loves us. As we read about how he'll save us, we want to respond in worship. That's what God's word does. And so we moved a song from before the sermon after the sermon to give us some more time to worship him. Because God would come even if everyone rejects us in this nation, even if everyone rejects God in this nation, Jesus would still come. For you. He was still to send his son for you. If you're the only person. In Sodom and Gomorrah. Who chooses to follow the Lord. Jesus would still come for you. It's the kind of rescue we have. The kind of God we have. Let's pray. Lord I thank you for your promise. Your promise that you will rescue us and save us from the evil of this world. God as we go through it there's so much to be thankful for. There are so many blessings. And God I don't want to discount that in any way. But Lord I can't wait for your return. I can't wait for your rescue. I can't wait for your presence. And Lord, as we have people here today, maybe some of them haven't made that choice, the choice that you've given. They haven't used that choice to repent of their sin and believe in you. Or maybe they thought they made that choice, but as time has gone on, they've realized that they love other things more than you. God, I pray that you'd bless us with your Holy Spirit, that we can turn and choose you, have the freedom to turn and choose you and put you first in our lives. God, I think of all the things that slip into my number one spot. And I reject them and repent of them. Even good things. God, I want you to be number one. As wonderful as my family is, God, I want you to be number one in my life. Because you're so good. It's where you belong. God, as much as I might love your provision and and my cars and my house and whatever, God, I want you to be number one in my life. God, I want to use that choice that you've given me to choose you over all things. And so, Father, by your Holy Spirit, I pray you'd bless us that we can use the choice you've given us to put you first. Holy Spirit, come into our hearts. Come into our lives. Fill us, Lord, that we may know you enough and love you enough that you come to the first spot. And Lord, bless us as we receive this offering and as we stand and join in worship of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.